Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, uh, with a special emphasis on verses 6 through 8, so we looked at verses 3 through 5 last time, that will be very much uh, in the background of what is being said then in verses 6 through 8, but let's read all those verses together and hear God's word, for I say through grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, Or ministry, let us use our ministering in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And let us pray once more. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which or whom you've poured out upon the church. And we ask you now that through the preaching you might... Stir us up by way, not only of reminder, but of, uh, well, through, through the preaching that you would stir up in us the very things that you are seeking for us to know and to do, especially in the use of our gifts in the church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to these particular statements in verses 3 and following... Uh, really, verses 3, not only to the end of chapter 12, but to the end of chapter 15. These particular statements in which uh, the Apostle Paul is exhorting us to live the Christian life in practical ways. So practical Christian living in the church and later in the world. We must be careful uh, to, to, to remind ourselves ever of the foundation that was laid in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God and so on. You remember, we spent so much time there. So I, I want to just keep those in mind as we proceed. And uh, of the five things we saw in those two verses, what is particularly gripping me in the preparation of this sermon, or what especially comes to mind are the words, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is he getting at when he says that? He's getting at the need for progress always. That's how we should view the Christian life. That's the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is not just to remain where you are. From the standpoint of the faith it is, you don't want to give up an inch when it comes to the gospel, but in terms of The living of the Christian life, the goal is ever to be making progress in holiness. And all of the practical exhortations that are given from verse 3 of chapter 12 to the end of the exhortations, there's even a little bit in chapter 16, as, as you know, all of those are given with that in mind to help the Christian not just to hold his ground with respect to the gospel, but to be making advancements in holiness. I want to read a couple quotes to you. John Murray, it is the thought of progression and strikes at the stagnation and complacency that so often characterizes Christians. And I wonder if he's describing you. I think I have to confess too often he's describing me. Not progress, but stagnation and complacency. 
or John Owen, a more lengthy quote. Why do many Christians grow so slowly in their desire for spiritual things? The majority are content to remain in their present state and are only concerned not to lose the ground they have gained. This attitude brings shame upon the glory of true religion and deprives the souls of men of peace and comfort. Few make any real effort to thrive in this state, to grow in grace, to be changed from glory to glory into the image of Christ, to press forward towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, to lay hold of eternal life, to be more holy, more humble, more righteous, more spiritually minded, and to have their desires more and more transformed into the likeness of, the he- of heavenly things. So, because of this foolishness, Christianity has lost much of its glory, and the souls of men have been deprived of the witness to the true power of godliness. When people look at you, when they look at this church, what do they see? Do they see the power of Godliness, do they see the power of the gospel to save or do they see people who are utterly stagnant? Well, you see, if that's our starting point, if we recognize that the beginning of the Christian life is a call to continual progress in holiness. And we see just how searching that is from the Sermon on the Mount, which we read earlier. The next question we ask is in which realm is progress to be made? And the first answer is in the realm of the church. Now, the next answer will be in the realm of the world. And we looked at that last time. Perhaps we might have begun in the world, but that's not where Paul begins. That's hardly ever where he begins. He's always interested in how Christians are functioning, how Christians are growing within the church. Why? Why is it, after all, that we came together if it was not so that we might grow in grace? You see. And so we are brought into the realm of the church. We are immediately confronted with the questions that concern our brother, not just ourselves, you see, but our brother. How am I to relate to him? And in this realm, there are two possibilities. One is that there is evident growth in grace, not just individually, but among the members of the church is growing corporately in the kind of way the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter four, verses 16 through 14, when he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edification of itself in love there is the body growing not just the individual christian growing that's the goal but that's one possibility the other is That the church herself is stagnating. And whenever we say that, what we're really saying is that she is declining. She's not functioning as she as she should. The body is out of joint. She's out of sort. The members aren't working together. They're at odds. And so rather than growing uh, uh, again to point to what Owen says, rather than growing and bringing glory upon religion, the church brings shame upon religion. And brings the church into disrepute. And the way that the Apostle Paul confronts this is first to give us a true conception of the church, especially in verses three through five and our place in it. The church is a body, one body in Christ, he says. We individually are members of it and thus members of the same body and of one another. We must realize at once the shared relationship we have with Christ, our head and with one another. And so the point is the Christian has no right To think of his own Christianity solely in terms of himself, 
Certainly, Paul says he must not have high thoughts of himself, but he must have sober judgment. And sober judgment leads him on in a better way. Sober judgment leads him to think of his brother and of the church more broadly. And then the second thing he says, which brings us to the current subject, and that is within that one body, there are, he says, a diversity of gifts. To each has been given a measure of faith, a gift to exercise for the good of the body. And so that's what we must consider next, the use of gifts in the church. We begin with a basic framework of the gifts. Understand this, first of all, that the gifts are given by Christ to the church. You see, just as soon as you say that something is a gift, you place it in the realm solely and squarely of grace. This is not something that you achieve through your own efforts. It isn't something that you work up in your own soul. This is not a principle of work suddenly injected into the Christian life. No, this is something which is a grace. It is something that is given. It is something that is given by the Lord Jesus Christ to the church. Go back to Ephesians 4 and listen to what the Apostle Paul says there. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith. So the gifts are a gift of grace from Christ to the church. Why did he give them? He didn't give them so that you would have high view uh, and a high thought of yourself, but he gave them in order to promote the very kind of unity that the Apostle Paul is commanding in Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. The gifts are not meant to send Christians at odds, but at peace with one another, though those, dif- those gifts differ. The picture is one uh, of harmony. And so we must see that each one has his own gift from God. Every one of you, if you're a Christian, God has dealt to you each a measure of faith, a particular gift. That's what he's saying here in verses six and following. I won't read all the verses. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them in prophecy. Let us prophesy and so on. Now, I'm not saying that everyone only has one gift. But I am saying that everyone at least as one grace has been given to each grace has been given to all or if we look in the third place where the apostle paul deals with this there's three primary places romans 12 ephesians 4 and then first corinthians chapter 12 we find him saying this for as the body is one and has many members this is verse 12 but all the members of that one body being many are Uh, One body, so also is Christ, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit, for in fact the body is not uh, not one member, but many. You really see him teaching the same thing in all three passages, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. Only here it's a little bit different. In, In Ephesians 4 he says, the ascended Christ poured out gifts to men. Well, how did he do that? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and this is in keeping with what we read in Acts chapter 2, the way that he gave gifts to men from heaven was by pouring out his spirit upon the church. And by pouring out his spirit upon the church, what he's saying is that you have been baptized not only into Christ, but by virtue of being baptized into Christ, you've been baptized into his body. You see, 
Spirit baptism is what leads to your place in the body. It not only leads to your salvation, but it leads to your place in the church. And just as the Spirit sovereignly saved you, so he placed you in the church and gave each one of you a particular function or a particular place within the body. And that's how we are to understand the gifts. Everyone, by virtue of spirit baptism, has his own measure of faith. He has a gift to exercise, a role to play. And it is in this way, as everyone is performing their own particular function, not at, not at odds with the other members, but in harmony, that unity is achieved. That is the teaching. Let no believer say that he has no place in the body. If he's been baptized with the spirit, he has a place. He has a particular spiritual gift to exercise. Of course, we know, and Paul says this in every passage, that not everyone has the same function or gift. Soon we will see how undesirable that would be. But sober judgment means in not thinking high thoughts of myself, I am concerned instead to use my gift for the benefit of others. Which is why it was given to me, not to puff me up, but to help my brother and to benefit the whole body and to help the body achieve unity. And so when thinking of the spiritual gifts, we must think in terms of the principle of the body. Again, that's what you find in all three passages that we have considered. The body has a variety of members, but each its own part and role to play. All members of the body are vital to the proper functioning of the body. There isn't a single part, a single piece, a single cell of the body that is not needed in some way. And that also means that each part of the body, as a part of the body, has an organic living relation with the others. In other words, there is no part of the body that functions in isolation of the other members. It functions always in the context of the body. And has no function apart from the body. And so you can't speak of a Christian exercising his gifts except in the context of other Christians. That is in the context of the body. Now, a simple example will suffice. I think it's the most obvious example, at least to me. I think you'll see why. It's that of preaching. Now, preaching is a gift of the spirit. It isn't the work of man. There are many men who are, uh, who are uh, very able and yet who cannot preach. That is because preaching is a gift, just like all the other gifts. Now, just think of this. The picture is almost ridiculous, but I think it's helpful. How can anyone, this is how I sometimes put it, how can anyone preach to pews? You see, if a man is preaching to pews, by which I mean there's nobody there, and there have been times, uh, not here happily, but I can think of one time where I preached to four people. And and I wonder whether that could even be called preaching. I, I suppose it was, but... You see the problem, you see the difficulty. As I looked out, I was mostly looking to pieces of wood, not human bodies. Can a man really be said to be preaching when he's preaching to pews? If there's no one to hear him. Of course, if there's anything like preaching, there is someone there to hear it. Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God preached. And if that is so, then obviously The purpose of preaching is not for the benefit of the preacher, but it's for the benefit of the hearers. Preaching only occurs in the context of a congregation. That's why God gave this particular gift to some. And that is how we must view every particular gift. It isn't something that occurs in isolation. 
It is something that occurs in the context of a congregation for the benefit of others. And so we come to the real principle, which is the main one we find in verses 6 through 8, and that is whatever your gift may be, use it. Use your own particular gift. Now you're going to ask me, well, pastor, how do I know what my gift is? Well, I'll come to that. But I'm saying to you now, use your gift and listen to me. Not the gift you wish you had, but the gift you have. That is key to the teaching here. There is great trouble that comes in in terms of the organic uh, living unity and harmony of the body when believers begin to envy one another and the gifts that they have rather than the gifts that God has given to them. No, Paul says, and I'm saying, use your own particular gift, your own measure of faith, not for your own benefit, not so that you can be built up in the eyes of others in the church, but so that the church might be benefited. By the way, let this be your reasonable worship. Here is your service to God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He's gifted you. He's called you to serve him as a kind of priest. Well, this is how you're to do it. Look at how Paul puts it here. Having gifts differing according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. If prophesy, prophecy, let us prophesy. If ministry, let us use it in our ministering, he who teaches and teaching, and so on. You see, not only must you use your gift, but the other thing that Paul is saying is you must use it in the right way. If prophecy, well, then in proportion to our faith, if ministering, if teaching, and so on. Now, according to that point, let me make several further comments. The first is that these are clearly gifts of the ordinary kind, not of the extraordinary. I'm making the distinction between uh, the ordinary and the extraordinary. That's a common way of putting it. The extraordinary gifts were an exercise in the early church. They were associated with the time of the apostles. When the time of the apostles passed, you were left with the ordinary gifts only. Well, obviously, there's an exception here that of prophecy. Prophecy was an extraordinary gift. I don't want to spend too much time on this. I want to, to, to put my emphasis where the emphasis is, and that is on the ordinary gifts, the gifts which continue, the gifts which you will find in every church today. In every church today, you, you may not find prophecy. I don't think you will. But you will find ministry. You will find teaching. You will find exhortation. You will find giving. You will find leading. And you will find mercy. But then looking at this list, we notice certain things. Understanding that the list is not exhaustive, obviously, and in fact, the, the different lists he gives differ. And yet, uh, I mean here and in 1 Corinthians 12, for instance, and yet the gifts he mentions are not random. They are instructive. There's a reason he gave this particular list. Understanding it isn't exhaustive, it is instructive nonetheless. And so, for instance, we notice that in the list that he gives, almost exclusively, though not uh, entirely, he tends to focus on gifts of leadership, those who enjoy a kind of uh, prominent place in the church. For instance, gifts of the word, uh, prophecy, exhortation, teaching, those who are standing at the front, I mean. That's what I mean by a prominent place. Those who have gifts of ministry or leadership. And the reason I think he did this is not to suggest for a moment that these gifts are more important. Go and read 
Go back and read what he said in verses 3 and 5, through 5, and you'll see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But the reason I think he did this is because these gifts, or those with these gifts, especially need to hear the message of verses 3 and 4. Everyone who is among you, I say, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, for as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. Well, leaders of the church, hear this. God has not placed you there to puff you up, but he has placed you there, even as he placed Paul as an apostle, with so much authority over the church, in order to build her up and to help her achieve uh, unity and grace. And so even though God has given this place of prominence in the church, still they are to stay humble and not to become exalted in their own eyes. They are to be sober in their thinking. They're not to have high thoughts of themselves. But the next point I would make, realizing that he's primarily talking about those in leadership, is that even in leadership you have a variety of gifts. And one of the besetting sins of the modern church is to think that every leader has to have all the gifts of leadership. And this is one of the great correctives to that thought. Uh, in in Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons on uh, these verses, he makes a great deal of this, and I agree with him. In a moment, I'll read a quote from one of his sermons. And so, for instance, now just, just think of this. Not everyone who is a preacher is particularly gifted as an exhorter. He may be a much better teacher in the pulpit. His particular gift is teaching, whereas you have another minister. He's not so much a teacher as he's an exhorter. And do you see how God can use both types of men? You see, we tend to find fault with the teacher. You're, you're not exhorting enough. Or the exhorter, there's not enough doctrines in your sermons. Well, did it ever occur that we have men whose gifts differ according to the measure of faith and the measure of grace? There's many examples of this in history. Uh, I think the most famous one, Lloyd-Jones gives a different one, but John Owen was a great teacher in the pulpit. John Bunyan was a great exhorter. Now, I'm not saying there was nothing of teaching in Bunyan nor nothing of exhortation in Owen, but you understand what I'm saying. Well, perhaps this man is both. Perhaps he's a gifted preacher, both as an exhorter and a teacher. But he isn't so gifted in leadership or ministry or administration. You see, he can't do everything. He only has maybe one or two or three gifts from God, but he doesn't have them all. And isn't it the case today that we expect the minister to be everything to the church? This is what he says. I think this is very, very helpful. He says, how often in the history of the church we have seen the importance of of this gift. A man may be very good. I don't remember which one it is. I'm sorry. I think it was ministering. A man may be very good, even a great preacher, but he may be thoroughly bad businessman. He may indeed be a man who has been who has to be looked after, even in his own preaching work. There have been many such men. And yet he goes on, it's a great thing for a preacher and pastor to feel that he is free to concentrate on the work that he's been especially called to do and that he's relieved from troubles and worries and anxieties. You see, it's just one example, but it's a very obvious example. So it's the one that both he and I are making. Even the preacher, he only has 
a gift or two, maybe three, but he doesn't have all the gifts. And it's just wrong to expect that he will. And yet the amazing thing is that he surrounded the preacher with so many uh, Christians who have the kinds of gifts that he doesn't have. And as they are contributing to the work that he is doing, suddenly the church is thriving. Suddenly he is thriving. Suddenly the church is thriving. Suddenly the members are thriving. And yet the church will suffer and it will get bogged down if it loses sight of this, if it expects the minister to do everything. No, the minister may need many, many others. He may need elders. He may need deacons. He may need members to help him in all of this. He cannot possibly do it all on his own. And if he doesn't, I say again, then the church is bound to suffer. You see, looking at this the other way around, it would be wrong for the elders with gifts of leadership and ministry and possibly teaching to envy the pastor because of his gift of preaching and wish that God made them preachers too. No, I say to the elders, that's not sober judgment either. That would be wrong. That isn't your measure of faith. Though I can also say, and here we see the sovereignty of the spirit, I have known, though it is very rare, I have known ruling elders who have the gift of preaching. Occasionally you will see that, yet that's not the norm. That isn't what God has called you to do. That isn't what he's gifted you to do as an elder. He's given you gifts of leadership, gifts of ministry, gifts of teaching. But let the preacher do the preaching. But we must realize that the spirit is sovereign and he can dispense gifts however he likes. And occasionally he will give a ruling elder a wonderful gift of preaching. And, and, and well is, is and happy is the church that gives that man the pulpit. Look at these two other gifts. Giving and showing mercy. I'm especially impressed with these as examples because they demonstrate a principle and that principle is this, that some things which are Christian duties can become special gifts that only some Christians have. Let me say that again. Some things which are Christian duties can become special gifts that only some Christians have. Just to give an example that we don't have here, but I think it's the most commonly used in making this point. We, every Christian is called to pray, but there are some Christians who have a special gift of prayer. And again, happy is the church that allows such men to pray. And so here, all are to give. Why would he speak of that as a gift? Every Christian is called to give. Well, because some are especially gifted by the Spirit with a giving spirit. Every Christian is called to give, but some have the gift of giving. Do you understand what I'm saying? And haven't you seen it? In your many years in the church, not only do they have a, a gift of giving from the spirit, but God has also equipped them with the means to give to others. Well, what Paul is saying and what I'm saying is if that is your gift, and I've known many Christians with this particular gift, they seem to take a particular delight in giving. And, and not only that, but others are greatly blessed in a spiritual way by such gifts. The point is, Paul is saying, if that is your gift, then do so with liber liberality. Use your gift. If that is the particular light that God has given, then don't put your light under a basket. Don't hold back. This is your portion from God. Here is your reasonable worship or showing mercy. That's the other, which, again, is common to all Christians. There isn't a Christian in the world who isn't called to be merciful. Nonetheless, we can also say, and certainly we've seen in the church, there are certain Christians who have a special propensity toward being merciful. It's their gift from God. 
And I and I would say, where would the church be without such people? You know, some of us, even though we're Christians, have very, a very difficult time showing mercy to others. And yet here are these others who have this amazing gift of showing mercy. Where would the church be without such people? We realize that the majority of us as Christians are not as merciful as we ought to be. But there are some we also realize who really excel in this gift. And it becomes, you see, their special contribution to the whole gift in exercising their portion from the Spirit, in showing mercy to others. Not under compulsion, not begrudgingly, Paul says, but with cheerfulness. If that's your gift, then do it as cheerfully as you possibly can. And so, in doing so, everybody will benefit as a result. Because, you see, they don't have the same measure of mercy as you do. But then the next question is, and it's the question everybody has, and and at times it becomes almost ridiculous the way the church tries to answer this question. How can you know what your gift is, or how can I know what my gift is? Well, I can assure you there will be nothing like an inventory gift list that will be sent out uh, after the service. Nor will we be laying hands on you and praying that the Spirit may manifest his gift to you. These are the kinds of things that are often done in churches. Or, or lots and lots and lots of reading is done trying to discern in prayer. Lord, what's my gift? I want to suggest it's altogether uh, easier uh, and more ordinary. There really should be no difficulty. Yet it still may be your question. And so let me answer it like this. The overarching point is if you are a Christian, if you've been born of the Spirit and given a place in the body, then you have a gift. At least one gift. And, and, and all in this, in discerning their own gifts as well as discerning the gifts of others, they must not have high thoughts of themselves but exercise sober judgment. And in exercising sober judgment, well, then I say again, use the gift you've got. But this doesn't answer the question as to our particular gift. Well, let no one say, I have no gift. Some of you might be saying that now in your heart. I have no gift. Don't say that. That's my starting point. Do not say that. As surely... As you have a place in the body, so you have some role to play. The question is, what is it? What's my role to play? And that's the question I want to try to answer for the remainder of the sermon. One important point to make here, and I would attach great importance to this point, is that in speaking of the vast array of gifts, is that some of them are quite ordinary. And I don't actually mean them the way I meant earlier when I was describing the difference between the extraordinary apostolic gifts and the ordinary gifts. I, I really mean they are, they're just as ordinary as you could imagine. In fact, you may be exercising your gift already and not even know it. That's how ordinary it might be. But if you understand the purpose and the nature of the gifts, that really wouldn't surprise you. You see, there's no need to make a fuss or a show or to draw attention to yourself in the exercise of your gifts. In some gifts, there's no avoiding it. Here I am standing before you. I can't help but drawing attention to, to this particular gifts, this gift. And that's why, as I say, the leadership especially needs to be warned to stay humble and to be sober. But the majority of the gifts, well, you exercise them and you almost don't even know it, nor does the other person. It's just something that happens. And, and the greatest tragedy that any Christian uh, could, could uh, fall into is to make a parade or to make a show of his own particular gift. That's what the Corinthians were doing with the gift of tongues. That's what typically happens in charismatic churches today. I've seen it with my own eyes. Well, if your gift is hospitality, then do that. If, if your gift is giving, then do that. You see, the list is as long as there are needs in the church. 
Does the church need givers? Yes, it does. I often have to remind people of this. I don't mean this church happily, but I mean in, in conversations with other Christians. You know, the church needs preachers, but it also needs people to write checks and put them in the plate. Where would the church be without such people? Yes, the church needs givers. It needs people to invite others into their home. It needs people to smile and greet and talk to visitors. Yes, it needs that too. Does the church also need people who are more gifted as leaders and administrators and teachers? Yes. Again, the pastor can't possibly do everything, nor is he meant to. I often remind people, and I think this is a helpful way of describing the very thing that the the Apostle Paul is talking about here. The church is not only as strong as the pulpit ministry. So often that's what's said, but no. The church is only as strong as the people in the pews. And I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's gauging the strength of the church, not solely from that of the leadership, but the whole of the body. That's how you gauge the strength of a church. So many of you not only already have a clear gift, but you're already using it. But if not, if you are aware of some ability you have, some contribution that you could obviously make to the church and you're not using it to the full, well then understand what God is telling you. If this is your gift, you're meant to use it. But not only that, let us also realize the gifts themselves are not natural but spiritual abilities. He's not just calling you into the exercise of something carnal but something spiritual, though, again, they can often be quite ordinary. And so we might be tempted to say, you know, this is just my natural gift. But even though these things are often ordinary, that doesn't mean they're natural. These are gifts of the spirit. They're the result of the new birth. Now, does our spiritual gift often correspond to our natural abilities? Yes, almost certainly. But we must learn to think of our gifts in spiritual terms. I I really cannot stress this enough. Because I have witnessed with my own eyes, Christians make a shipwreck of their faith when they exercise their gifts in carnal ways, not in spiritual ways. Of course, I I am speaking of preachers. But I've seen men destroy themselves in the exercise of their gifts. You see, even as they were building up others, they were destroying their own souls. We must think of these things In spiritual terms, not in natural terms. Yes, God has given you a gift, but you must exercise it in a gracious way. You must use it to stir up grace in others and in yourselves. Otherwise, as John Owen says, the use of your own gift will only succeed in destroying your soul. Let let, let me read what he says. A person who trusts in his abilities to pray. So I was talking about preachers. Well, he's talking about men who pray. A person who trusts... In his ability to pray, might may find prayer is actually destroying his soul. Prayer born of gifts and not of grace will do just that in the end. When gifts are used to stir up grace, they are wonderfully useful. But if gifts take the place of grace, then they damage our souls. One of the ways I've thought to put that, and you could say it's about anything, but it's possible to have the gift of preaching, but not the grace of preaching. And we could say that of all things, you could be exercising your gift of prayer, but not the grace of prayer. And do you understand how dangerous that is? You've become carnally minded, not spiritually minded. And the very thing that God has given you to build you up is actually destroying you. And so if these are spiritual gifts that come from the spiritual, uh, from the spirit, I mean, then they can only be exercised in the context of the exercise of grace by gracious persons. Yes, the state of your soul matters. That's why Paul puts 
puts it the way that he does here. Prophecy in proportion to faith, giving with liberality and so on. It matters how you do, the, do these things. It matters the state of your soul. This is the exercise of a new gracious principle, the new life of the new man. And so to really answer the question, how do I know what my gift is? My answer is that it really should be obvious by now. And I'm guessing that many of you are already doing it to some extent. It may be quite ordinary and yet critically necessary to a well-functioning church, but If you say, I still don't know, there are times when we need to be made aware of it by others who have told us. There are many who have been gifted with a particular gift who didn't know it, and they needed others to encourage them to use their gift in the church. That's also what Paul is doing here. You see, if you can't see it, the church can. The body is able to recognize you have this contribution to make. Don't you see it? Don't you see this ability that God has given you? And when that happens, the church calls on you to use it. There's many examples of this in the history of the church. But my last point concerns avoiding the extremes in this. And the first extreme, which I've spoken of already, is the minister does everything. The people are simply spectators. This is common in churches. They come to observe, not to participate or to make any particular contribution. This is especially true in the high church setting. The minister performs, the people spectate. But it is also possible in reformed churches where the minister comes with a sermon and the people come to listen. And that's all that happens. That's the extent of things. And so we tend in those settings to exalt the preacher to a place that is too prominent. And we lose sight of the greater principle that's being made. About every member of the body. The other extreme is found in many churches today. And it's the so-called every member ministry model. It was very popular uh, 10 years ago. I don't know if it is anymore. But I still want to interact with it. The idea is that every member has a ministry. So far so good. That's clearly what Paul is teaching here. But here's where it goes wrong. It says that the only role of the preacher. And the sermon. And the worship service is to equip people for the real work of ministry. Notice the emphasis that ministry is not occurring in the context of worship. Preaching and worship is not real ministry. The real ministry occurs once the service is over. You may say that's a strong man, Pastor, but I promise you, I've heard many Christians articulate it just like that. It's not a strong man. This is what is sincerely believed by many Christians today. All I'm doing, I've heard a preacher say once, all I'm doing is equipping the saints so they can do the ministry. That's not right. That is not right. There is some truth to it based upon Ephesians chapter 4, but the emphasis is wrong. Real ministry is occurring in the worship service. I hope you believe that. I know that you do. It's not just afterwards, you see, but during. And so that's the flaw of this mentality. If the first error tends to exalt the preacher too much, the second error diminishes the importance of worship altogether. What's the correct view? Again, we've come together. We're called to exercise our gifts. What's the correct view? Well, in the context of worship, the the correct view is to value the preaching, to see it as its own valid ministry. Here is a gift to be exercised for the benefit of the body and not just insofar as it equips others in the use of their own gifts. Indeed, to see preaching as central to the church's mission. I don't know how we could spend any time in Acts in the evenings as we have and not see that. But then, again, we're looking for a balanced view to see that part of the value of preaching 
as a gift for the benefit of the body is that it stirs up gifts in others. That's the proper balance. In other words, we should all be ready to use our gifts after a good sermon. That's the value of a good sermon is it stirs up grace in you. And it makes you realize your own gift from the spirit and it makes you ready to use it. And I would say if a sermon didn't succeed in doing that, that it had failed. Not that that was its only value, but surely that's part of the way in which preaching uh, uh, ministers to the body. Every one of us should be ready to use our gift after a good sermon. And that's one of the reasons that we thank God for the gift of preaching in others. Not just that we like to listen to good sermons. Well, Herod liked to listen to John the Baptist. It didn't change him. It isn't enough to like to. I hope that you do. But it isn't enough. The sermon has to produce something in you. Well, you'll forgive me if I quote John Owen one more time. He says, Worship is never an end in itself. So the first and chief reason why believers delight in evangelical worship and all the ordinances of gospel worship is because in such worship, their faith and love for God in Christ is stirred up and strengthened. You see, the body is being edified. And so, well, now it's been edified and it can reinforce that edification to itself and it grows in grace. Worship has this beneficial effect upon us. It isn't enough just to come and then to go. It's not an end in itself. You're looking for something. And when you found it, well, that's reason to praise God and to serve him. It stirs up grace in our souls. And as a result of this, we are better equipped to use our particular gift for the benefit of others. But I would go even further than that. I would say that we ought to use our gift during the worship service, not just after. You see, I almost fell into the second error. But here I would correct it by saying, use your gift now. As we come together as a body, you need to be using your gift now. The Directory of Public Worship says, neither are the people of God to be passive spectators in the public worship, but by faith are to participate actively, actively in each element of the worship service. Bring your gift. Use your gift. That's what he's saying. Use your gift. Exercise your faith in the worship service, too. Don't just sit there and spectate, but bring your faith, bring your gift, whatever it may be. In so far as you possibly can in the worship, do you realize that part of the witness of the church has always been, I mean, the man who comes in and he, he, he's taking in the church, part of the witness of a particular church has always been what this man on the street notices from others, not just from the preacher. You see, you thought it was just the preacher. He was taking in what the preacher was saying, and that's all he noticed. No, that isn't right. He's taking in the whole atmosphere. He's noticing what's occurring, not just from the preacher, but from the people. The contribution, Paul says, and I'm saying that each makes to the whole, even now, each is making his contribution. As you are exercising your faith, as you're exercising your gift, as you're worshiping God. You see, I can see it. So can the visitor. Recently, I was preaching and one of you was on your phone for the whole sermon. Did it ever occur to you? Not only that I noticed it, but so did others. And so that that detracted from the worship service. You see, you weren't contributing. You were detracting. You see, that's also the terrible possibility. Now, what is what is bound to happen if a visitor comes in? Well, this is what's bound to happen. He's bound to think these people don't find anything in the sermon worth their attention, anything helpful to their souls. 
What's in it for me? And so the balance is this. The church is at her best when all the members are engaged fully. When the members are engaged before the worship, that is before they come together in prayer. When the members are fully engaged during the worship service. And when the members are engaged after. And so we, the Apostle Paul says, being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Or as he says in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 13 Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edification of itself in love. Amen. And let us come to the table together.